Welcome to the Pharmacy Future Leaders Podcast with your host, Tony Guerra. The Pharmacy Future Leaders is part of the Pharmacy Podcast Network, focusing on pharmacy student perspectives, interviews, and the future outlook of our pharmacy industry. Hi, this is Jennifer Adams, Senior Advisor of Student Affairs at the American Association of Colleges of Pharmacy, and you're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast. Welcome to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. I'm your co-host, Tony Guerra, for the Pharmacy Future Leaders Podcast, broadcasting from the DMAC Ankeny campus. Connect with me at Twitter, at Tony underscore PharmD, or on YouTube, at Tony PharmD, where you can find over 700 pharmacy videos supporting my books, Memorizing Pharmacology, and the new one, How to Pronounce Drug Names. Usually we talk with new pharmacy practitioners, soon to be pharmacy graduates, but today we'll talk to an innovator and leader who can help these leaders achieve their goals. Jennifer Adams, PharmD, EDD, graduated from Boise State University, Idaho State University, and the George Washington University. She's currently employed as Senior Student Affairs Advisor at the American Association of Colleges of Pharmacy, AACP, and provides leadership and oversight for association national student affairs activities, including FarmCast, PCAT, and the Pharmacy Career Information Council and Student Recruitment. Welcome to the Pharmacy Podcast. Thank you. Well, we're really excited to have you on, and uh, I know that you uh, really help a lot of students, a lot of uh, graduates out there, uh, but we want to know a little bit about your leadership road. So uh, everyone's leadership road is a little different. Let's start with where you are today and how you became a leader in AACP, helping pre-pharmacy and pharmacy students with their futures. Well, my career path has been a little bit different in that it has always involved association management. Um, I was involved in National Pharmacy Associations as a student. I was a member of APHA ASP and was a leader at the local level as well as at the um, national level. And I often tell people I was at the right place at the right time and said the right thing to the right person to be aware of an opportunity that was um, available at APHA. But the roads started at APHA working with the APHA ASB chapters um, and I began to recognize in working with students and working with um, chapter advisors that while I loved my job working at APHA a lot of the love for that job was because I worked so closely with academia and academics and so when a position in student affairs became open at AACP it was the perfect fit for me in terms of being an association management position, but something that also very much supported academic pharmacy. No, that's fantastic. I, I remember my first APHA was in, I want to say Seattle in 93 or 94, and I just talked to Nancy Alvarez about it, and she told me the exact year. So uh, now that she's president, <laughs> she, she knew every single year exactly where they were and, and really getting involved uh, really completely changed my pharmacy school experience getting involved nationally. So tell me a little bit about um, what it is to, when, when you're looking to become an academic, and that's what's maybe going to be the, the focus of this podcast episode. Um, when we talked earlier, you mentioned if you know maybe 10 academics were in a room, likely eight of those had different paths, just as you said, you had a bit of an unusual path to your position. Um, what can you tell those who are looking for a career if these paths are so different and there's no step one, step two, step three to get them there? Yeah, wouldn't it be nice if there was a stepwise process that we could tell everyone, take these exact steps and you'll get to where you want. It would be fantastic. Um, <laughs> it would be so great. Um, it really much 
centers around your personal interests. And so if your personal interests are that you want to be a clinical practice faculty member, then a PGY1, PGY2 in a specialty area that is you know, based on your interests are likely going to be the path to getting there. But if your interest is a little bit different, so say, for example, you're interested more so in human behavior and why people make the decisions that they make about taking their medicines. Um, So you may want to look for a graduate program looking at pharmaceutical outcomes, um, possibly something in the social and administrative sciences to focus on the human behavior aspect and become more of an expert there. And so just a PharmD is not necessarily enough to be able to go on to become an academic. It generally requires either experience working out in the field for a pretty significant period of time or this other types of postgraduate training, whether it's a PGY1, PGY2 residency or a graduate program of your choice. So for example, I have a a doctorate degree in education that's focused in higher education administration. And that's the area that I work in, in academia, is very much focused on the administrative side. And so as you begin to develop your interests, you can figure out what those appropriate next steps would be that would help you to further your training based on those specific interest areas. Well, you mentioned a lot of it's right place, right time. Uh, How do you hit a moving target like that? Because uh, your job probably wasn't necessarily open when you were maybe, or maybe you did train at the same time to get the job. Um, How do you hit a moving target like that? Because uh, the job might not be there, but then it might pop up. So how much does luck have to do with it? Or is it just the job, I don't want to say the job appears, but, but how does that work where you're really shooting at this moving target? So a lot of it's based on um, relationship building in my mind. Some people call it networking and I like to call it relationship building. A lot of it is more about being able to get out there, be a part of the profession, network with others, get to know other people, because those are the folks that are going to help you to know what opportunities are where and any of the positions that I've had so far on the association management side, but also any of the potential positions that um, I've been exposed to in, in actually working in academia have all been because of somebody that I had a relationship with either knew about the position and recommended me for it or the people that were searching were thinking, oh, you might be a good candidate for this. And so a lot of it's more so about, you know, I say right place, right time, but Part of that is putting yourself in those right places and expanding your network and building those additional relationships with people who will have the potential to help you uh, navigate and further your career. Okay, I think I'm going to butcher it, but I think there's a famous quote, something about when the student is ready, the teacher appears or something like that. Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe when the the applicant is ready, the, the job appears or something like that. Um, exactly. Well, Uh, And you have to be ready for that opportunity and notice that it's appeared. (laughs) (laughs) That actually, uh, I I think because pharmacy is such a small community that generally by the time it would be published, uh, that might be too late. You should know about it before if you're really within within that sphere, I guess, or the specialty sphere. But what about um, maybe uh, I'll talk a little bit about what I did. So volunteering 
tutoring, uh, becoming an adjunct professor was a big part of getting my job at a community college. What are the things that maybe someone should volunteer in during school, after school? Uh, and I'm not just talking about volunteering within the community. I mean volunteering within the profession. So <clears throat> I, I think that some of the opportunities are volunteering to help the faculty that are part of the group that are teaching you how to become a fantastic pharmacist. So volunteering to help out with a course, um, maybe working with a faculty member from a course that you took in the previous year and saying that you'd like to help and be a tutor for the students that are following you. Um, looking for those opportunities to be able to get some experience teaching, whether it's learning from a faculty member, what it takes to put a syllabus together. How do you write test questions? Um, how do you how do you plan what you're going to cover in class to make sure that the accreditation standards are met, but also so that everyone's becoming the type of pharmacist that fits with the mission of your college. So getting some experience and some exposure by asking some of those key questions and really kind of volunteering your time. Um, another piece I think that's also important is if you have the opportunity, if you think there's an area of research that interests you, and I, I will give the caveat that when I was in pharmacy school, my initial exposure and thought of research was working with the lab rats or at the bench. And there's so many different types of research, whether it's researching how education is provided, what we call the scholarship of teaching and learning, whether it's research in the social and behavioral sciences, whether it's research that looks at pharmaceutical outcomes. There are so many different types of research that are occurring at your colleges. So volunteering to help out with some of that research to get some exposure to the research process would be also be very helpful. Okay, I think I just got an email from AACP revisiting the posters that were there. And on the left-hand nav bar were about 15 different specialties. And uh, I just started kind of looking at social and administrative pharmacy and, and some of the stuff I do in community college actually is very relevant when we see medication adherence and things like that. So it sounds like even just looking at some of those posters to understand where do I really fit in, uh, AACP mm -hmm. does a great job of supporting um, you and just maybe even identifying uh, which which direction you're going to go in. Um, what what um, if you're looking at a pharmacy school? What does an adjunct professor look like at the community college level? It's pretty clear. You teach a class for a semester, and then you know maybe you're brought on to do it again. But visiting professors, adjunct professorships, what does that look like in pharmacy schools? So most of the time when we think about adjunct professors, or even they're sometimes called volunteer professors, most often they'll serve as preceptors for students that are on either their introductory pharmacy practice experiences or on their advanced pharmacy practice experiences. So that's bringing a student into your practice setting, teaching them about your role in your particular setting as a pharmacist, giving them the opportunity to actually practice as a pharmacist underneath your supervision, uh, making sure that they have that safety net of someone to supervise what they're doing so in the event that they make a mistake that it doesn't actually harm a patient so it gives that idea of being able to practice in a setting that's a little bit safer but also a real world setting with real patients and real medication related problems so that's predominantly the way that most adjuncts 
find in, in colleges of pharmacy. And it may be that <clears throat> you're working in a very innovative setting and doing some really innovative things, and they might ask you to teach a lecture or two. Um, as a as a visiting lecturer in in the college, and that would likely be something that was more on a volunteer basis versus something that you would be paid for. Um, so that's that's kind of where it's a little bit different because in a community college, most adjuncts are paid for the teaching that they do. Yeah, and uh, I know the ACP is trying to grow the preceptorship, uh, especially those outside of. Um, the pharmacy schools. Can you tell me a little bit about your efforts that way? Sure. Um, <clears throat> we know that, you know, many of our clinical practice faculty also work in practice settings and so they take students, but we really need pharmacists from all practice settings and across a really broad array of different types of experiences that you might have as a pharmacist to be able to train effectively the students that we um, take on in our PharmD programs. And so, you know, the, the amount of faculty that we have to have to be able to provide that level of almost individualized experience. Um, for most schools, you'll, you might have one or two other students that are on rotation at the same time as you doing your IPPEs and APPEs, but really it's this much more focused, much more individualized attention. And so we need a lot more people than we would ever be able to have on an individual faculty member basis. Okay. And uh, I've um, set this up, but maybe you can add a little bit to it. So uh, the first group that I'm going to be having uh, for my APPE is coming from Creighton. And that happens to be because they live literally uh, within 20 mile radius of where I am. If you're somebody who's uh, maybe just graduated and says, you know, I'd really like to be a preceptor, maybe you moved away from your alma mater, what's the easiest way for them to get in touch with a pharmacy school? Whom would they talk to? Uh, and what are the things that they would have to go through? So um, one of the things that I would recommend is visiting our website, aacp.org. At the top right-hand corner, we have the pharmacy school locator. And so if you don't know about what pharmacy school is in your area, you can check that out. Um, looking at the map to see what's close, there's also a list by state um, that makes it really easy to see what schools are in your area. And we link to their websites as well so that then you can reach out you know, via their website. I would look for the person who's responsible for um, experiential education. It could either be an associate dean or a director level position person that is responsible or an assistant dean that's responsible for experiential education. And I would reach out to that person and have a conversation to say, you know, what are your expectations of preceptors? What kind of training do you provide? Because many of our pharmacy schools recognize that our preceptors, uh, they come with great clinical training, but maybe don't have as much training on how to be an effective teacher. And so many of them will provide opportunities for you to learn how to be an effective teacher in an experiential setting. There's also, through some of our national pharmacy organizations, um, opportunities to gain a teaching certificate, if that's something that you're interested in. I know ASHP just launched a teaching certificate that is something that can be used in residency programs so that when residents are going through their learning experience as a resident, they're able to gain a teaching certificate at the same time. And the program from ASHP also encompasses learning in the experiential setting 
And then you have a couple different modules, some that are more for if you wanted to focus on being a full-time faculty member, but I also have a module that's focused for specifically for preceptors. So if you wanted to invest in yourself in that way, you could complete some additional training and gain a teaching certificate to help with that process. Okay. And I've been a member now of AACP, I want to say almost three years, because at first I... I looked at AACP and thought, oh, okay, that's only for uh, those people that are in the pharmacy school, and that's just the academy. That's the only people that really should be part of AACP. Uh, and that, that was actually wrong when I started to see the, the value that I was getting out of the membership and the things that were coming out, uh, especially of the, the national meeting. So can you tell me a little bit about, let's say I'm in many of the listeners at Pharmacy Podcast or Pharmacy Owners, uh, what would a pharmacy owner get out of membership with AACP? Well, we provide a lot of resources for folks in terms of being able to really understand academic pharmacy, being able to understand the scholarship of teaching and learning, and we provide a lot of resources for our members, whether you're a preceptor, whether you're an administrator, whether you're a full-time faculty member, and whether you're on the basic science side or the clinical practice side or social administrative sciences, we have groups for everyone. Um, We also have groups that go across interests. So we have special interest groups for for groups like, for example, there's one for women faculty and one for people who are interested in ethics and some who are interested in the history of pharmacy. And so we have a number of different ways that you can engage with the organization based on your specific interests. Yeah, the more I I hear about the the national meetings, the more I hear it's about connection and uh, Mm -hmm. being able to connect to other people and and really not necessarily connect with people that have to be within your scope, but maybe seeing what other people are doing outside of yours that might apply in some way to uh, what you're doing and and really what's going on at the pharmacy schools, what's innovative and things like that. Um, Mm -hmm. Well, what about... um, Let's maybe go back a little bit to the the academic positions um, and uh, what how much teaching experience does someone expect? Um, let's say I'm a, at the School of Pharmacy. I'm I've got a position open. Uh, how much experience in teaching itself are they ex- are they expecting or is research more of a component? Uh, how much does that factor in? I know Ph.D. hires would certainly be research intensive, but I'm talking more about PharmD hires. So most of our PharmD faculty um, come through the clinical practice faculty member route. And so, excuse me, in those cases, the percentage of time that you spend in different areas is very different than, say, someone on the basic science side with a PhD in pharmacology. So a clinical practice faculty member might spend 50% of their time actually taking care of care of patients in a practice setting and then they might spend you know 30% of their time doing teaching 10% of their time doing research and 10% of their time providing service either to the college or to the profession or to their community and so the breakdown of how your time is spent is different for different types of faculty positions and so given that if I'm a clinical practice faculty member, given that uh, the largest chunk of my time is actually focused on taking care of patients, they're going to want to be sure that you have the appropriate training to be ready to take care of patients 
you know, right from day one, maybe setting up a new service in a hospital, um, <clears throat> potentially providing new services in an ambulatory care setting, you know, really kind of across the board there, making sure that somebody's prepared to provide an expert and a high level of care. And that's where the PGY1, PGY2 comes in. And so as you've been having that experience, they're also going to be looking for you to have precepted students that have maybe been on rotation where you were completing your residency. They might also be looking for you to have gained a teaching certificate. But the more experience you can get in terms of teaching, the better off you will be in starting in your new um, faculty position. But there's also not an expectation that you have predominantly had teaching experience because when you look at that breakdown of time, if 50% of the time is in practice taking care of patients, that means that they're also looking for a higher level of the clinical training. And that's just one example. Every school and every faculty position, that breakdown of time is just a little bit different. And so that's part of the learning process when you're applying is researching and figuring out how what does that breakdown look like and what would work for me and my interests. Um, do I want to spend 60% of my time teaching? If so, then, you know, a, a, a traditional clinical practice faculty position might not be the exact right fit for you. So looking at the, the ways those are broken down to see what fits best for my personality. Okay, so I think we've covered preparation, but what about the actual interview process? So when uh, my wife graduated from uh, residency, uh, there were some open uh, positions and uh, she applied for some positions. And I want to say that the process took somewhere between six and nine months. I have no, I, I can't really remember exactly what it was, but uh, what's that interview process like uh, over time? Um, yeah, just what's it like? Yeah, so it, it can vary school by school, but in general, you are looking at you know, six to nine months before a final decision is made. And part of the reason for that is that there's a, a, a vetting process that the schools will go through to determine, you know, do you have the right characteristics of what they're looking for in training the next generation of pharmacists? And so often the process will start at the ASHP meeting. Um, I was just at that meeting earlier this month and talked to a number of people who were participating in the personnel placement service. Um, where the colleges are there and they actually interview people as kind of a preliminary interview, just an opportunity for folks to kind of get a, a sense of would I fit here? Are these people I could see as my colleagues? What's the position really look like? What's the breakdown in terms of time spent and where I would be spending the most time to really kind of get an idea of who's going to submit application materials for the position. And so then following the ASHP meeting, you would then want to go on and submit your application for the positions that you're interested in and the ones that you think might be a good fit. Then there's usually a search committee at the college that will review all the applications that come in. They'll determine a handful of finalists. Most often it's, you know, two, maybe three finalists that they'll bring on campus for an interview. And that interview could be an all-day process where you meet with students, you meet with the administrators, you give a presentation, you talk about your research interests, you talk about your interest in teaching and different types of pedagogy um, to really give them a sense of who you are. And then likely the university will invite their top candidate back to campus and 
um, really offer the position at that time. And in some cases, that person has other offers on the table. It might not be quite the right fit. So then maybe they go to their second option. Um, but that in itself can take quite a fair amount of time. Um, and so the idea of six to nine months is not anything that's unrealistic or outrageous to think of um, because of the fact that that vetting process does take some time. I know there's one really awkward question, and I wanted to ask you how you would handle it, or maybe you handled it with your own job, which is, how do you ask how much the position pays when it usually says pay is commensurate with experience or something like that, something very vague? How do you ask how much am I going to make without asking how much am I going to make? Because my understanding is that's not really appropriate early on or maybe it is I don't know but what about that the money question so that's actually one of the benefits that we offer to our members at AACP is that we collect a large amount of information about the institutions that are members of AACP and so when you are an individual member you can log into our website and you can gain access to see all the faculty salary survey data so you could look for a position like what you're applying for and see what this what the salary range is based on the experience that you would bring coming into the position so that gives you kind of a, a pretty good sense of the ballpark um, of what you could be expecting for the position um, and of course that can vary a little bit more or less but it at least gives you kind of a good idea um, if you wanted a ballpark number uh, we just presented a session on this topic at ASHP, and <clears throat> in general, the ballpark number for um, most incoming faculty positions, it's about $100,000 a year, which is a little bit less than what your average starting pharmacist salary is. That tends to be in the $118,000, $120,000 range, and so it is a little bit less, but the other benefits of being a faculty member with increased flexibility in terms of the way that you manage your time, um, really knowing that you are contributing to the future of the profession in what you're doing every single day. So there's some of those kind of intangible benefits that go along with having a slightly lower salary than maybe some of your colleagues. And with three children, that my children might go to college for free would be a very tangible uh, yes. uh, something or other. But uh, I love my job now. I'm very happy with it, though. I guarantee I'm not uh, in, the, in the same sphere uh, financially as the, the guys at the pharmacy schools. But my understanding is that you let's kind of segue into uh, the support that you get from an outside source, uh, the Walmart Scholars Program. I know of it, but I don't necessarily know it. And I understand it supports a significant number of students every year in terms of getting them to AACP. So it would have been Los Angeles or Anaheim last year and then Nashville this mm-hmm. year. So can you tell me about the Walmart Scholars Program and, and what kind of uh, student uh, would would qualify, what they need to do, kind of all those things? Sure. So uh, one of the things that I think is really fantastic about the program is that Walmart recognized 13 years ago that if we don't have enough good faculty, then they won't have 
enough good pharmacist graduates graduates to be able to employ in their stores. So I think it's really interesting that they've supported this program for so long because they don't get a direct benefit out of it. It's a it's an indirect benefit of making sure that we have enough folks who are interested in academic positions and going on to careers in academia. And so what the program is is that it supports students, so student pharmacists, it supports resident fellows, graduate students in any of the pharmaceutical sciences or any of the other social administrative, you know, student graduate students that are enrolled in colleges of pharmacy um, to attend the AACP annual meeting in the summertime. And as you mentioned earlier, the AACP annual meeting can be really fantastic in terms of, you know, you can view all the posters, you can um, participate in the different sessions, you can learn a lot about um, how to you know, is this a world that I might fit into? Do, do am I connecting with any of the folks here at this meeting? Um, it's it's a little bit more intimate than some of the other National Pharmacy Association meetings. It's usually less than 2,500 people. So it's a little easier to be able to connect with folks. And so part of what the Walmart Scholars Program does is it provides a $1,000 stipend for the students that are um, accepted in the program and the money goes towards your registration for the meeting and the rest of it can be applied to your travel costs. So you apply with a faculty mentor and so you and your mentor are both evaluated. You're evaluated in terms of your potential as a, a, you know, a future ed- academic pharmacist. Um, your faculty mentor is evaluated based on their mentoring skills. And so we want to make sure that people who get the opportunity to participate have a good mentor that's helping to facilitate their process. So when the scholar and mentor are selected, um, they receive the $1,000 stipend, they attend the meeting together, you're given your own educational track to follow throughout the meeting. And that also allows for some flexibility for you to be able to explore your own interests. And then what I think is one of the best parts is the opportunity to build some relationships. So we host a reception at the meeting where we invite all the Walmart scholars and their mentors, as well as all of the department chairs from the colleges that are at the meeting to come and network with each other because the department chairs are the folks who would actually be hiring you as a faculty member. So it's a really great way to to kind of... Um, explore those next steps and and to begin building those relationships to maybe know about positions that haven't been posted yet or something that you might be a good fit for. So it sounds like you're not only getting uh, some networking and you like the word relationship building uh, between mentor and student, uh, between but you're also seeing mentor and mentor, student and student, uh, where students can kind of gather together. What's your experience? Mentors can gather together, learn from each other. It sounds like there's it's a, almost like a, a conference within a conference uh, where mm-hmm. we have maybe this this smaller group of less than 100 people that, that go through. Uh, well, if you double it up. Right. So uh, but this small group of people that go through it together, uh, have this experience together and then uh, really not only just uh, it's, it's more than just here. Here's your money for the plane ticket. Here's your money for your hotel. It's uh, here's an opportunity to have a completely different experience than maybe uh, me just coming in to you know, register for the program uh, and doing some other tracks. Um, exactly. Can you tell me a little bit about the deadlines uh, that are coming up? I think they're soon ish or, or it opens soon and deadline is maybe not that soon. Yeah. So um, 
hopefully before the end of this week, which I realize is is very soon. Um, but before the end of December, we will have the um, application information up and available on our website. And then the deadline. So I tell people the applications come up around Christmas and they're due on Valentine's Day. Um, no. Had someone tell me once that I was ruining their Valentine's Day. And I said, no, I'm not because you're going to get it in early. And then your Valentine's Day will be just fine. <laughs> oh, man. And many many ways we could go with that one, but we'll we'll just uh, stick with uh, eighty five people at least will will have a happy Valentine's Day. But tell me Absolutely. about the the numbers though, because uh, pharmacy school is hard enough to get into, but this is within the prof- or not within the profession, but this is something else. And you mentioned that uh, the the acceptance rate is a little a bit lower. Yeah, so to actually be accepted for the Walmart Scholars Program, it's more competitive than it is to get into pharmacy school based on the number of people who apply versus the number of positions that are available. So we know that there's definitely a lot of interest. And it's it's also one of those things where it's, it's good to have on your CV when you're applying for a faculty position. And it really becomes a talking piece in, in an interview of, oh, I see you're a Walmart Scholar. Tell me a little bit more about that. You know, um, our faculty know a lot about the program because we evaluate them in terms of their mentoring skills. And so it's something that faculty are also rewarded when they are your mentor and have been selected um, and recognized for their mentoring skills to be a part of the program. So um, it really is one of those things that kind of sets you apart as, as someone who is going to navigate down that path towards academic pharmacy. So tell me a little bit about Oh, I guess uh, so you, you mentioned that uh, there was this uh, badge label that you get. Um, is there a color to it? I'm, I'm going to you probably remember <laughs> guess, the color, right? I think it's a light green. OK, <laughs> I, I just color. know that that by the time the meeting's over, I, I'm, I'm pretty good at I can you know, I can name that badge, you know, and I can tell you exactly what what each of them are. But uh, you mentioned that if uh, if a faculty member will see that green badge, let's call it green, uh, that that's actually a stopping point where many faculty will actually stop that person and talk to them and and get their interest or something like that yeah so we do actually we have ribbons that go on your name badge just like most of the national pharmacy association meetings do and um having the ribbon that identifies you as a walmart scholar is actually beyond being a badge of honor that you were selected for this um pretty exclusive program it's also a way for the folks who are at the meeting to identify somebody who wants to go down the same career path that they've chosen themselves and that can be very flattering for folks you know, to know, hey, you want to be like me. That's fantastic. And so I've actually seen where faculty will pull someone aside that they see got that ribbon on and say, hey, you're a Walmart scholar. That's fantastic. Tell me a little bit more about what your interests are. What are you thinking about? So just someone out of the blue who did not know this person as a Walmart scholar struck up a conversation with them just because of this ribbon that was on their name badge. So um And people will walk up and introduce themselves and say, you know, hey, welcome to academic pharmacy because of the fact that you have that that ribbon on your name badge. No, that sounds like it's so many benefits to being a Walmart scholar and uh, certainly worth it uh, if you are interested uh, to give it a shot. Um, Tell me a little bit more about uh, Nashville. Uh, While the theme is always education of some sort or another, I feel like 
a lot was about admissions when we, or the, the pre-sessions were about admissions when we talk about uh, Anaheim. Uh, what's in store for Nashville, or is this too early in the planning process to say what the theme's going to be? Um, it is a teeny bit early because there, um, our uh, programming committee is just going to be selecting some of the um, the sessions that will be there because the, the sessions at our meeting are submitted by our members. So much of the content during the meeting is actually very member driven based on the research that you're doing as a faculty member and based on what you would like other people to hear about and to be able to gain feedback from others on what they're doing on, under that topic. But we do always have pre-sessions as well. Um, we, we host an admissions workshop every year where we train the admissions officers at the colleges of pharmacy on how to best select the students and how to use the, the software that we provide for them to do that and Farmcast and all of those things. Um, we also have other pre-sessions as well. We have one that's called a teacher seminar, which the Walmart scholars get to participate in as part of their experience where you learn how to become a better teacher. Um, <clears throat> and it's designed as professional development for faculty members and the Walmart scholars participate in that as well. So. Um, leadership pre-sessions, a number of different things for folks to be able to develop their skills as pre-sessions. But then during the meeting, we have our House of Delegates. Every school has two delegates. So there's a policy process that occurs um, that guides our organization. Um, we have a science plenary. We have opening general sessions with fantastic speakers. But really, the core of our meeting is that member-driven programming where our members are submitting sessions that they think other people are interested in. Um, and, and we get a lot of submissions <laughs> and not so many, not as many that get accepted as I think what most people would like, but it really provides a broad perspective of what's going on across the academic pharmacy, what's innovative, what's new, um, and how are people actually developing themselves into better teachers, researchers, and administrators. And then, of course, you mentioned earlier the poster sessions where folks can present posters on their on their research, usually more focused on the scholarship of teaching and learning and how they've made themselves into a better teacher, how they've maybe navigated um, the way that they provide education in innovative and different ways. Um, just one last question before we get your contact information uh, for people that want to know a little bit more. Can you tell me about the faculty mentoring program? And it just it was just kind of striking to me. I, I don't really think of my teachers as someone who need teachers, uh, but mm -hmm. uh, they do. So uh, can you talk a little bit more about that faculty mentoring program and, and how that works? Because it just, just when I was reading it, I wasn't really, I don't really, you know, think, I always think of my professor as all knowing, or at least in their discipline. I don't really think of them going to someone, but can you tell me a little bit about that? Sure. Um, when you become a faculty member, there are so many different things about what you're doing that are different than just being a practicing pharmacist. So when you become a faculty member, you have to be a good practicing pharmacist, but you also have to figure out how to teach um, and how to do that effectively. And you also have to figure out what, what you know, what research am I going to do? And where am I going to start? And so as a new faculty member, you might have research interests coming in, but whatever path you start down can be the path that you continue on for a very long portion of your career. And so making some of those decisions can be a little bit challenging. 
Um, <clears throat> and faculty are promoted. Um, there are different levels of faculty. So you'll generally start as an assistant professor. And then after of a period of time, which generally in most cases, depending on if it's tenure track or non-tenure track, is about six to seven years that you would look to be promoted to associate professor and then possibly to full professor. And so there's expectations. Um, they call them promotion and tenure guidelines for what you need to do in your position to be able to be promoted. And so having a, an opportunity to be able to be mentored by faculty who've been there, done that is actually really fantastic. And it's nice to have a mentor from your own institution, but it's also really helpful to have a mentor from outside your institution to be able to provide some different perspective. And so we do pair up junior faculty with more senior faculty from different colleges so that that way they can get to know each other at the annual meeting and have an opportunity to really you know, begin to build a relationship that can turn into a really fantastic mentoring relationship with someone outside of your own institution. No, that's fantastic information. Um, if someone did want to contact you, we can put your contact information in the show notes, but uh, what's your preferred way to be contacted or what's the way that uh, you do best? For me, it's definitely not phone call, it's definitely email. Uh, what would be the best way for you to be, someone get in touch with you? Um, Probably email or even I do a lot of professional stuff on Twitter. I get contacted sometimes as well from LinkedIn. Um, although I will say that if I've never met you and I don't know your name, it's tough for me to see, you know, making that connection on LinkedIn until we've at least had some kind of interaction. So maybe reaching out to me on Twitter or via email um, would be uh, the best place to start. Okay. And then uh, just a couple of quick hit questions here just to um uh, leaders don't get that way uh, just overnight. There's some uh, habits that you probably have that can help us. Uh, what's your best daily ritual to keep your work on track? My to-do list, um, and it's handwritten, which I know is kind of funny. At one point, I tried to do an electronic version of it, and it just didn't feel the same crossing things off the list on, on my iPhone as it does on my paper list. And so I have this this running to-do list that every day I take a look at and prioritize what are the top three things that I need to make sure are, are done today. Um, and it's a, it's a way to keep me track, keep, keep me organized and keep track of things because I receive a significant bomb of email and um, requests from a lot of different places um, in the role that I'm in. And so keeping track of all those requests and making sure that I can get back to everybody and prioritizing those things is, is very helpful. Okay. And what's the best career advice you've ever gotten? Probably that pharmacy is a really small world, which can work to your benefit in terms of building relationships, but it can also um, be one of those things that can be a bit of a challenge if you've burned a bridge. So keeping that kind of in the back of your mind as you navigate your career, that you never want to burn a bridge because pharmacy is such a small world. Yeah, I think I learned that one in pharmacy school. Uh, pharmacy school becomes very small when you realize that, wow, we're all together for three years in the same classroom. <laughs> and they, they sold it pretty well to us. Like, you know what? You guys don't even have to move. We're just going to bring the professors in. Don't worry about it. Uh, and this is back in the you know early 90s. But, but uh, yeah, I, I have to agree with you. Pharmacy is a small world. And then finally, what inspires you? Um, I would say that 
having the opportunity in my job every day to have an exponential impact on my profession, that's what inspires me. I know that the things that pharmacists do in taking care of patients matter and that they're making a difference in people's lives and that they're improving the patient outcomes and they're they're helping people to have a better quality of life. So if I can be a part of improving that and and doing it in a way that's exponential, um, that to me is is really what inspires me. And I can do that in working at a National Pharmacy Association, but faculty at every single college of pharmacy do that every day in training the students to become fantastic pharmacists. Well, thank you so much for being on the Pharmacy Podcast. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. If you're interested in being on Pharmacy Future Leaders, contact me on Twitter at Tony underscore PharmD. And if you're interested in sponsoring an episode, contact Todd Yeri at thepharmacypodcast.com. We thank you so much for listening. Thanks for listening to the Pharmacy Future Leaders Podcast with your host, Tony Guerra. Be sure to share the show with the hashtag Pharmacy Future Leaders. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.